This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. What if comparing car insurance rates was as easy as putting on your favorite podcast? With Progressive, it is. Just visit the Progressive website to quote with all the coverages you want. You'll see Progressive's direct rate, then their tool will provide options from other companies so you can compare. All you need to do is choose the rate and coverage you like. Quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Comparison rates not available in all states or situations. Prices vary based on how you buy. Hello and welcome to Little Gold Men, the award season podcast from Vanity Fair. It's such an honor to present this next award. And here are the nominees. And the Oscar goes to... And the Oscar goes to... And I can't deny the fact that you like me right now. You like me. I'm the king of the world. There's a mistake. Moonlight, you guys won Best Picture. I'm Katie Rich, the deputy editor of VanityFair.com, and I'm here with our chief critic, Richard Lawson. Hello. And our senior writer, Joanna Robinson. Hi, Katie. Uh, we continue to be in a season of a lot of movies that are made available to watch at home. A good problem to have, um, especially if you need distractions from the rest of the world, as I think we all do. And in my case, uh, spending the weekend reading Daphne du Maurier's Rebecca was a great escape from reality. So we are going to do, as promised last week, our book club episode about Rebecca, which is newly adapted on Netflix. Uh, and we'll be talking about the Hitchcock movie as well. Um, and then there's there's a lot of movies coming out. There's some that we're going to hold for next week that are out this week, including Borat, the Borat sequel, um, and a couple other things. But there's a couple other new movies we wanted to get into. Um, and Richard, I wanted to let you start uh, with The Witches, the Robert Zemeckis movie that's coming to HBO Max this week. Joanna and I have not been able to see it yet. I mean, I think most people haven't. So, you know, you can give a preview of this. But I'm deeply curious about this as... It's kind of one of the few high-profile studio releases planned for this year that has just gone for straight to VOD. And it's interesting because, I, you know, it was seemed like kind of a gamble. Like, I don't know if it was going to be a guaranteed box office hit, even if it had been able to come out in theaters. But uh, but what do you make of this new movie from a major director that's on HBO Max? Well, I will say something in its favor, which is that, you know, Robert Zemeckis, who has directed movies that I love and that, you know, the world loves, but I think of late has fallen into this like obsession with like technical achievement, you know, and yeah. can I pull this off and then kind of forgets to like tell an interesting story or have good performances or whatever, you know, I will say for this, that is less of an obsession. It seems like I think he really obviously there is a ton of technical stuff that he, you know, pulls off or tries to pull off. But I, I think for the most part, he is actually kind of keeping it respectably world doll sized you know um fantastical as that might be it's you know it's only it's like only a couple settings it's it's the special effects moments come few and far between ish uh which i appreciated and i don't know i i otherwise i i don't know if it's just because i'm too, you know too old or whatever but the movie itself feels kind of slight it's just kind of like oh that's the story and then it ends and okay you know mm-hmm. and it it didn't really like register with me the way the reading the book did or seeing the um 1990 film did um which of course it never was going to because i was 7 years old in 1990 mm-hmm. and i'm you know 27 now I'm mm-hmm. doing the math, right yeah 17 17 yeah, yeah. 17 sorry yeah. um there's a whole magazine devoted to me um <laughs> Sassy, right? <laughs> yeah, right, yeah, yeah, YM actually. Um, but you know, I, 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 I went in 
thinking, oh, God, like it's going to be another thing where computer effects just, you know, basically ruin something I liked as a kid, like uh, Burton's Willy Wonka compared to the Gene Wilder crazy one. It doesn't do that. It just also doesn't like ever get to a point that feels exciting, I guess. The something that I, you know, we are going to talk about Rebecca and its many forms later in this episode. And something that I was thinking about when I was watching the new version is like, when I watch a remake, I want to think about like, this remake needs to prove itself. Like, why was this remake necessary? What new thing does this filmmaker have to say? Or how have our perceptions shifted that we need this? And I mean, it sounds to me like you're saying, you know, no, not going to Anne Hathaway or anything like that, but that that this doesn't have anything to add to, you know, a film that came out fairly relatively recently, um, you know, and a classic book. Yeah, except that it's it's visual trappings are going to be more recognizable and appealing to today's children i would think in the way that like you know with certain exceptions you know when i was a kid there were just a few movies that were there were movies where it was just like no this is too old i just i visually can't even connect with this you know Mm -hmm. um so i think that might be the reasoning for you know updating it 30 years later um, I just want to ask about Anne Hathaway, um, because I think we are established on this podcast as rooting for her. It feels like she's had a rough go of it. She had um, she was great in Ocean's 8 a couple years ago, but it's been a while since she's had like kind of a big showy starry role. And this seems like a big showy starry role. And I think we all know that she's got camp potential in her. Um, how does she uh, meet the challenge? She's good. I mean, she's fun. You know, she's doing a Scandinavian by way of Russia, by way of the Balkans by way of I don't know where else (laughs) accent but like the movie knows that it's ridiculous like I don't think that she basically just gets to say certain words the way she wants to say them even though that doesn't present any regional (laughs) consistency Um, though at the same time she is tasked with something that Angelica Houston wasn't in the original film which is that in this movie which was partly written it was you know Zemeckis Guillermo del Toro and uh, Kenya Barris, uh, who are all credited as writing the film. And this version is about a black woman and her grandson being terrorized by these witches and this one witch in particular. And it's textually in the movie that witches prey on vulnerable children who won't be missed if they're gone. I think that's kind of a paraphrasing a line from the movie. So it gets into in that one scene, at least issues of race and and then cast the witches as not just a sort of supernatural force that, you know, is sort of totalizing in its badness, but also one that is keen to and exploits inequities in the real world. And that's tricky to then make that character fun. In, you know what I mean? Like, like to make the witch character fun when she's also a racist. The, there's nothing that written for Hathaway's character that addresses race at all. It's, it's something only Octavia Spencer's character says. Uh, early in the film but that adds an, a weird new wrinkle to the movie that's not unwelcome it just kind of it 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 recalibrates the level of goofiness i guess that H- hathaway can kind of tap into right um yeah, yeah. and I, I imagine the stakes as well i mean like you know any child crime is is i guess uh serious but like roald Dahl had a way of of like putting children in peril in a way that just felt like not that serious even though it was tremendously serious what happens mm-hmm. to like Augustus Gloop etc but like um 
But yeah, when you add, I mean, I guess that was my, that answer sort of my previous question, which is like, if you have Kenya Barris credit on this and you're trying to like engage in, you know, a, a, a slightly more 2020 perspective on who, who is a vulnerable child. Um, yeah, that adds a stake, a real world stakes to this that changes, changes. Um, it, stakes, it changes yeah. the, the kind of what the story is, which is okay. And like things can evolve and and right. whatnot i th- but i think that if they were going to do that i wish then that more of the film's aesthetic and performances match those stakes mm-hmm. you know yeah because it's like th- this thing this is introduced this motivational or sort of modus operandi for these witches is introduced and then never really addressed again but but it, it really lingers in your head because it's a short film and it's like a big thing to say in in this children's movie and uh, yeah, so I wish they had interrog- kind of grappled with that more. On the flip side, I will say that um, something that I really liked about this version compared to the 1990 version is it lets the ending be kind of dark. Whereas in the 1990 version, there's sort of a deus ex machina and everything's kind of solved by the end. In this one, it's like, no, things have irrevocably changed and they are not going to be able to change back. That's, you know, true to the book, too. And I like that kind of... I don't know, British pragmatism that's like, no, we can't just solve everything with a, you know, a wave of the wand, so to speak. Um, yeah, I've been reading uh, Roll Drop books with my kid, actually, um, which has been fascinating. Just like read James and the Giant Peach to like your precious child. You're like, oh, do we really want to read about like this kid being tortured by his aunts for no reason? And like the answer is yes. Kids like hearing about other kids in peril. I'm not sure that we're ready for this movie, The Witches, at this point, but maybe in a little while when we're not watching Sesame Street on HBO Match. Yeah, I mean, there are some genuinely, there are scenes where I'm like, oh, this would definitely be scary for a child, you know, which yeah. is, it kind of should be. Yeah. Um, but yeah, so I think that experience will vary depending on the kid. Yeah, I think it, it's it's okay to scare kids, especially in the, you know, this, the spooky season. Why not uh, be mm-hmm. scared by Anne Hathaway? I mean, it's fun to think of introducing Anne Hathaway as like a camp villainess to a, a new generation. And I mean, Stanley Tucci's in it. So this is a gateway drug to the Devil Wears Prada, maybe. Mm-hmm. Very much so. Um, yeah. and, uh, <laughs> and, you know, look, like... It's good actors in like an expensive looking movie based on a classic thing. And uh, that feels very abundant right now in a time where we're, you know, a lot of the films we're getting are really small and, you know, not uh, ornate studio projects. Yeah. Um, Well, speaking of, um, you know, big major movies that are going to be available to watch at home, although On the Rocks, the new Sofia Coppola movie has also um, had a theatrical run. It's coming to Apple TV plus this week, it looks like. You know, it was an Apple movie originally, so I think it would have always had this kind of weird rollout, but uh, it becomes a kind of fascinating movie to watch primarily at home since it is about Rashida Jones and Bill Murray as his father and daughter kind of, you know, for a large truck in the movie, they're on this like weird caper night out in New York and they go to bars and restaurants and, you know, interact with people and all these things that feel kind of fantastical right now. Um, I was kind of charmed by this movie, um, finding it like, you know, both slight and with some emotional heft to it. But Richard, I think you were a lot less enamored by it than I was, um, which is okay. We can we're here to disagree. But I mean, do you at least find it think of it as kind of a worthy escape for people stuck in their home still? Mm. <laughs> no, it never really goes anywhere. It doesn't escape you to anything. You know, it's sure. just sort of like dr- just a takes a drive around the block and then drink ends. a martini in a bar. Well, that's the other thing. On the rocks, they're drinking martinis up most of the movie. So they're not drinking things on the rocks. It really called, bothered me. It should be called Up. There's no other yeah, movie right. called Up. Just call it yeah, Up. Right. This is a real Cinema Sins uh, video waiting yeah. to happen. Oh, God. I, no. <laughs> I take it back. Um, but yeah, I just, I, I just felt like it never got going. And I think that Sofia Coppola is such an interesting filmmaker and an interesting writer. But this just, it's, it never clicks into 
what second gear i don't know i don't i can't drive stick but um <laughs> bill murray it, can though he yes, does yeah, this movie. A, and look there are charms like i think that like his character with his kind of laissez-faire wealth and you know these beautiful manhattan apartments and cityscapes and all that stuff i mean it, it's pleasing to look at murray's great i think rachita jones just doesn't have much to play and kind of suffers because of that but yeah i just i don't think that that coppola doing contemporary talky relationship comedy is really her ken i I don't Mm. i always appreciate when someone tries to like work outside of their their norm um i just think it wasn't successful this time yeah. I mean, it's something that like, she has done well where, you know, she's got uh, Rashida Jones in kind of the role of a young woman who's feeling like isolated and, you know, not connecting to the people around her, which she's done well before. But it does have like kind of this light comedy vibe about it that, you know, it's not like it doesn't have sadness to it. Like the the complexities of the relationship between Rashida Jones and Bill Murray as her father, who kind of like was a little absent and, and unreliable um, and how that reflects on her marriage with her husband, I think is it brings a heft to it. But the, the marriage with the husband who's played by Marlon Wayans is like a little bit harder to kind of get a grip on, especially because he's not in that much of the movie. He's, uh, you know, off to the side while she's running off with her dad. But I definitely just was kind of enchanted by the idea of like bar hopping in New York. It feels so exotic. Um, And so if that is something that you yearn for, uh, it might be worth checking out. If you have Apple TV Plus, which I have no sense of how many people do at this point. Joanne, are you planning to watch it at some point? Yes, absolutely. Um, (laughs) No, and Apple TV Plus, you know, I was really skeptical of their programming lineup uh, when they launched. Uh, I didn't find much to love there. But between Long Way Up, which I'm obsessed with, the Ewan McGregor Motorcycle Show, uh, and Ted Lasso, which everyone has uh, become very enamored of. And this seems like, you know, it has a lot to recommend itself right now. So maybe if there's like a, you want to try, do an Apple TV Plus trial, maybe now's the time to uh, to watch all those things. I like the idea of Ted Lasso and On the Rocks as like an escapist pair. Uh, They're very different, (laughs) but uh, maybe serve the same purpose. And Ewan McGregor on a motorcycle. And Ewan McGregor on the motorcycle. That one I haven't watched, but that also sounds like a good way to like fantasize about travel. It's perfect. You're like, remember outside? Remember meeting (laughs) strangers and talking to them? Oh, delightful. Well, before we get into our Rebecca conversation, uh, we'll pivot over to one more Netflix title. Uh, they released a trailer for Ma Rainey's Black Bottom yesterday uh, that is starring Viola Davis and Chadwick Boseman. It's a uh, adaptation of an August Wilson play. It, we've been kind of eyeing it as yet another one of Netflix's huge heavyweight awards season titles. Uh, uh, you know, it's got Chadwick Boseman's now final performance. Um, I think it probably would have been a big deal otherwise, but that definitely adds some heft to it. And, um, you know, as we saw in the trailers, it's like this big dose of old school blues music. Um, Viola Davis is playing this real blues musician, Ma Rainey. Um, what grabbed you guys about it? Um, just yeah. it's really I mean, it's it's exciting to see a movie or trailer for a movie that I mean, this sounds cynical, but it's just kind of announcing itself as one of the big movies of the year. Yeah. You know, it's yeah. like, yeah. here's this like rush of artistry and color and music and performance based on, you know, this one of the most lauded playwrights, uh, American playwrights of all time, like one of his uh, another one of his plays, you know, a couple years after Fences won Viola Davis and Oscar. Like it just feels like an occasion. And mm. the trailer is well cut in that way. And the performances look good and the music sounds good. And I just it just feels like, oh, this is an event finally, you know, and I, I really enjoyed those two and a half minutes for that reason. <laughs> yeah, it's it's interesting. I mean, uh, we will be talking about another Netflix film, Rebecca, in a second. But like I, when I was watching Rebecca, I was like, this feels like it feels small screen to me visually. And Ma Rainey does not feel that way at all. It feels big screen. 
and that's exciting because you know that that's that's been a b- really big challenge this year uh, to feel like we have things that feel big screen. Mulan felt big screen for better or worse, uh, you know, yeah. in terms of like storytelling wise. That felt something that I was really glad I was watching on like a relatively large TV that I have. Um, and you know, ditto. That's how I want to watch Ma Rainey. And it's it's been, you know, this year with so so many things uh, coming to us uh, in our homes and and available on various devices. It, it has made some cinema feel small, and this is a this is a film that, you know, I have only seen the trailer, but it doesn't feel like it will be small in any way whatsoever. So, yeah, and it's, which is interesting because it's based on a play, um, right. and you True. can you know you can see it's uh you know in the trailer a lot of the action is set in this recording studio. Um, but yeah, I mean it's a it's a well done period drama with a ton of great music in it, and you're right that does kind of scream like this is a cinematic experience. And Netflix is releasing um, all of their kind of big awards movies in theaters to some extent, and um, so some people will be able to see it on the big screen, but I think most people will, will experience it at home. But if you want someone, you know, if you want some faces to draw you in, even on a small screen, it's harder to do better than Chadwick Boseman and Viola Davis. Hey, I'm Brian Stelter, host of Inside the Hive from Vanity Fair. This week, with the help of Dan Adler and Olivia Nuzzi, we're going inside the media circus swirling around Donald Trump's criminal trial. People want coverage of Donald Trump. There are sort of shades of 2015, 2016. I found it to be a a total break from the reaction to a lot of Trump coverage in the last two years. Join me, Brian Stelter, on Inside the Hive from Vanity Fair. Listen wherever you get podcasts. Apple Card is the perfect cashback rewards credit card. You earn up to 3% daily cash on every purchase, every day. That's 3% on your favorite products at Apple, 2% on all other Apple Card with Apple Pay purchases, and 1% on anything you buy with your titanium Apple Card or virtual card number. Visit apple.co slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA, Salt Lake City Branch. Subject to credit approval. Terms apply. Okay, as promised, a little Goldman Book Club. I I love doing these. I know it's been hard to have like a consistent schedule for book clubs this year, um, but Joanna, you were really gung ho on doing this book club for Rebecca, um, and now I know why. I didn't know you were like a teenage Rebecca super fan. So uh, <laughs> only the movie. I don't think I don't think I. Yeah, I wasn't like obsessive about the book as a, as a teen, but like I loved that Hitchcock movie for some weird reason. Um, well, I mean it's a great movie. That's why. No, yeah. um, but yeah. I had never read the book before. Had either of you read the read Daphne du Maurier's uh, book before this? My dad read it to my sister and I when we were kids. Wow. I love this. Love um, knowing but this. But so long ago that I basically was reading it anew. You know, yeah. I like I knew I all I remember was that they're like something. There's like a twist. That's all I really remembered about mm-hmm. what the book was about. And I also knew that Rebecca was not a character in the book. You know, like yeah, like, right. Yeah. But that's that's two big things to know. Yeah. So, it, you know, it has had several iterations, right? There's like Rebecca the Novel by Daphne du Maurier, which I did read when I was a kid, but really enjoyed rereading um, for this purpose. There's a 1938 Hitchcock film, which is his only best picture um, Oscar winning film. And so like very famous for that reason. Um, I think more famous than it might otherwise have been um, if it didn't have that stat attached to it. And then... 
there there's a at least a 1997 PBS masterpiece theater version with Dame Diana Rigg as Mrs. Danvers and Charles uh, Dance yes. as um as Maxima <laughs> yes. Game of Thrones pre reunion. It's true. It's true. Tywin Lannister himself. Uh, so yeah. So that and oh, Faye Dunaway in a great like. Uh, a great over-the-top performance. Um, Who is she? She plays the, the awful woman that uh, oh, she works with. Oh, the Hopper yeah. or whatever. Yeah. Wow. Yeah, exactly, yeah. That's great. Yeah. And then, you know, we will all be uh, treated to this new version that Ben Wheatley has done for Netflix with uh, Army Hammer and uh, Lily James and the great Chris and Scott Thomas. So it's interesting. It was funny. Sorry, I don't mean to like dominate. No, no, no. I, I, I kind of don't even know where to start. So I kind well, of want you to help. It's just interesting to me, uh, Katie, because I, I want to talk about like one of the biggest aspects of the Rebecca adaptations, because you mentioned that off air, you mentioned that you felt like these uh, adaptations were all pretty faithful and they are pretty faithful. Like there aren't like, except for a major plot point is excised from the Hitchcock version or softened in the Hitchcock version because of studio interference in the Hayes production code. Um, Well, I guess we should say spoilers for Rebecca because we should, we should talk about how all of these stories play out and it's a pretty famous story. So, you know, don't listen to this if you have not, if you don't want to be spoiled on something, although I don't think it can ruin the experience of the book or the Hitchcock movie, personally. So the plot point you're talking about is how Rebecca, our title character, dies. It's a big deal, yes. <laughs> uh, so in the, in the Hitchcock version, which uh, features Joan Fontaine and, and Laurence Olivier, you know, Max and Winter and his new bride do, you know, in every version of the story, do, you know, run off into the sunset together at the end of the of the film, at the end of the story. And uh, in 1938, that wasn't allowed if Max and Winter murdered his first wife, mm-hmm. uh, which technically he did in the book and in this most recent uh, Netflix version and stuff like that. But uh, in the uh, Hitchcock version, she tripped and fell and hit her head. And then he messily covered it up by making it look like she drowned at sea. Although he did hit her to make her fall down. So he like you know, pushed her. Kind of like yeah, some, yeah, like some indirect yeah. Uh, action there. Yeah, but he didn't uh, Yeah, shoot her. Can I read? Um, I have the the notes that the network, uh, that the studio gave to Hitchcock about what he had to change for Amazing. the movie. Do you want to hear him? Yes. Okay, we have read the temporary script, uh, and I regret to inform you that the material, in our judgment, is definitely and specifically in violation of the production code. Oh, sorry, this is probably the... This is a production code, not the studio itself. Um, the specific objection to this material is threefold. A, as now written, is the story of a murderer who is permitted to go off scot-free. B, the quite inescapable inferences of sex perversion. We will get to that. And C, <laughs> the repeated references in the dialogue to the alleged illicit relationship between Favelle and the first Mrs. De Winter, and the frequent references to the alleged illegitimate child to be. It will but be essen- stay in, which is yeah, interesting. Yeah. It will be essential that there be no suggestion whatsoever of a perverted relationship between Mrs. Danvers and Rebecca. If any possible hint of this creeps into the scene, we will, of course, and the scene being the one where uh, Mrs. Danvers fondles uh, Rebecca's negligee, uh, we will, of course, not be able to approve the picture. Specifically, we have in mind Mrs. Danvers' description of Rebecca's physical attributes, her handling of the very 
various garments, particularly the nightgown. In the final cut of the film, all the scenes mentioned by Breen in his second letter take place just as he... Oh, sorry. This is this is the person, the article I'm reading from. In, all, in the final cut of the scene, film, all scenes mentioned by Breen in his second letter take place just as he described them, even though changes were made to accommodate his other objections to the movie's content. So uh, the gay subtext stays in. Um, but And the extramarital affair, so yes. long as the murderer doesn't get off scot-free. Yes. <laughs> So long as there isn't a murder. So, yeah, that is that's a fascinating difference to me. And I think it changes the whole story, honestly. So because his guilt is not about being a murderer, because the whole thing is that, like, what is ruining their relationship is not that he's still in love with his wife, which is what um, the second Mrs. Winter thinks, but that he is guilty of having murdered her. And so if it was by accident, you feel like it doesn't pack the same punch well but i also think like i don't know how you guys feel about the ending of uh, or, or rather the beginning of the book because the beginning of the book is where our um maxim de winter and his unnamed second wife now and it's like holed up in a, <laughs> in a hotel room reading the news every day like they're in quarantine basically um like is that a happy ending or not and like i would argue if it's like if she's has to like compromise herself and is shackled forever to a murderer. I say it's it's not, but I don't know what you guys think. Well, this is, I think, a big part of the new movie where you know, I think you ask yourself the question, why do you remake Rebecca? And it seems like what director Ben Wheatley or Netflix or whoever the kind of engineering force behind this was, was like, all right, we want to empower the narrator. Like, we want her to have more agency in the story. Because I think in the book and the 1940 movie, like, there's this pretty paternalistic relationship between her and her husband, which is a little bit harder to get on board with. But so they go to great lengths to be like, well, she she has to go and, like, find the letter from the doctor. And she has to, like, take action on behalf of her husband. And it ends on this, like, happy hotel scene where they're, like, having sex in Cairo and this voiceover where she's like, I learned that the thing to fight for is love. And you're like, wait a second, this isn't a happy ending. Like, you can't, if you tell the story of Rebecca as, like, people overcoming adversity and finding their way through together, like, I think maybe you don't get Rebecca. It just, it doesn't feel right at all. Uh, It doesn't get it at all. I mean, exactly. the new version is just, like, it's it's like the Baz Luhrmann Great Gatsby, which is just like, what if sexy things happened in the past? And you're like, but, <laughs> but there's like, but there, there's a cautionary aspect to these great works of literature from you know roughly the same era, like, and 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 I this this movie is so unkeen to that, and I also feel like the Hitchcock movie, kind of, I mean, obviously the Hayes Code stuff, but like it just kind of pairs down what in the book is so dense and psychological and about like assumption and intuition and and manners and all this stuff like kind of compacted together into like every every single choice a person makes you know um Mm -hmm. and that's so interesting Uh, and that's really hard to capture on film and like uh in two hours especially um but i think the new version really really fails where at least the hitchcock thing is creating a sense of atmosphere right um which carries it a long way yeah, it's interesting to me because um, I was I was looking at some interviews that like Lily James and Ben Wheatley had done around this, and both of them sort of reiterated over and over again that they really want to establish these the the De Winters as characters you're really rooting for. And I'm like, ooh, I don't, <laughs> okay. Um, <laughs> and that's why they changed Maxim's age to make them the same age. Whereas 
as you say um, in the book and in the first film, it's sort of like a somewhat uh, paternalistic or almost like vampiric uh, way that, that like Maxim de Winter is like my young bride. Oh, your your young innocent look is gone forever. Like he he's like yeah. I want this like young teen girl, this like naive uh, you know of a different class than me, girl who knows nothing about me. I want to see myself through her fresh eyes and be yeah. like the dashing hero again. Um, the age difference. I mean, like Lawrence Levy has some like gray streaks in his hair. The age difference is actually the most pronounced, I think, in the 97 version where Charles Dance and Amelia Fox are just it looks like, you know, yeah, like a little predatory. And um, I just think that Army Hammer and Lily James are super miscast in this movie. First of all, I think Lily James is far t- like I like Lily James in general, but I think she's way too mind bogglingly drop dead gorgeous to be the insecure young Mrs. De Winter, and for for like everyone to be like, oh, you'll never be as beautiful as Rebecca to, to Lily James is like, oh, um, okay. Um. <laughs> she's not, it's not just that she's so gorgeous; it's also that the way that she's directed and performs in the film yeah. is she's like pretty quickly once she gets to Manderley, like bright as a bell, and just sort of like, oh yes, like so nice to the help as they're putting together the party and all this, like. She's just playing another sparklingly charming young British woman, which is like what actresses like her get forced to play all the time. Correct. And it's because the director doesn't really have any insight into what this character would be feeling which De Maurier gives plenty of material to mine in that regard, uh, but just ignores it and instead just like does, you know, sets it to programmatic, like charming young British woman. Yeah, the, the book, the book just emphasizes her misery constantly. Like all she wants to do in that book is get away from every single thing that's happening. Like there's this whole you know thing where she agrees to throw the costume ball and like in the book, she's like, I don't want to do it. I don't want to do it. And then they basically make her do it. Um, and so I think on screen, they have to make her like a little bit more active in what she's doing. But yeah, the, the new movie, she's just like, oh, how who could not love me? And like even Maxim, like basically never stops, which is also problematic because the whole thing is she's supposed to doubt that he loves her anyway right and like Joan Fontaine I remember watching I lo- I did love this movie when I was younger but I also remember thinking Joan Fontaine uh, in this movie and in subsequent performances was just like an extreme over actor and like you know just like really over the top in her sort of like quivering whatever performance and I have come around on that like I love her in this movie and I, I really love her in Suspicion which I think is this is sort of this story done even better like I think even just a year later um and Joan Fontaine won the Oscar for that movie but like her in her constant fumbling insecurities it's not that Joan Fontaine isn't a beautiful woman but like you just buy her like and, and that's the concept of Rebecca I mean I'm sorry if anyone's listening to this and hasn't read or seen any version I don't think we did a great job of of like sort of recapping what it's about but basically like this woman comes to stay at this manor home she's married this guy who she met in Monte Carlo and you know on a sort of on a on a whirlwind romance and arrives there there's a sinister uh housekeeper figure in the in the form of Mrs. Danvers and she is immediately haunted by the shadow of this of his first wife Rebecca and basically it's a ghost story like it's three stories in one, right? It's like a romance and then it's a gothic story. And then it's like a detective mystery thriller. Like these are the three genres we traverse in Rebecca, which is interesting. But like the the ghost story, the gothic ghost story that happens in the center, it's not a literal ghost. It's a ghost made of her own insecurities. And as Richard said earlier, like assumptions. And that's that's like a brilliant idea. Because like who, who among us hasn't dated someone and been like, 
mildly obsessed with their previous partner. You know what I mean? And you're just sort of, I don't know, maybe that's just me. Or even just shown up somewhere. And I I tweeted about this, basically reading the book, because it captures so well the sense of being like, well, they they all think I don't belong here. Like, it's just pure imposter syndrome, the way we call it now. And the book has so many great passages along those lines. And I do think Joan Fontaine gets at this, like, trying to be happy, trying to be pretty and do all the things right, and she still can't quite get across the finish line. Like, she captures so much of that. And I think... The new one tries to have this more modern character who, like, if she shows that kind of weakness, you'd be just like, come on, like, be more confident. And in the period piece, it, it just works a little better and feels truer to what the story is trying to do. And I think also the the horror of certainly of that, you know, British women of that era where especially ones of a certain social station, like, when is your life your own? You go from being your father's to maybe some little gap period like hers where she's, you know, some lady's paid companion to then just entering the realities of this guy's life and all of its past and all of its traditions and everything like that and never really knowing where she fits into any of that Mm -hmm. and um and how not just like scary but kind of annihilating that would be you know like i don't know who i am and 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 everyone is telling me I'm I'm at the very the only thing I know is I'm not this dead lady, you know. Yeah, and she literally doesn't have a name, which is such a right. like a bold move accident, on the book's you know? part. Yeah, right. yeah. Um, and I just I think there's such a richness there and such an urgency. I mean, it's such a it, it's a genre bending novel or, or 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 genre combining novel, but also just like a really like urgent social thing. And I don't know. I just wish that. I mean, I know that Hitchcock, given the era, was a little bit restrained from getting into much of that or maybe he didn't really care to but like in 2020 man you can do a lot yeah, the, uh, yeah. and they just don't the, the question of class is so interesting and i was trying to like parse the ways in which both films are successful and unsuccessful in showing us that there is something about joan fontaine i think it comes down to the, the section in the hitchcock version where she tries to like repin her hair and like dress up differently because someone tells her to and like she still looks beautiful but it does look a little wrong and it, it just looks like someone trying uh you know in, in a way that they're that they just they just don't know what they're doing. Whereas once again, I just think yes, in her like Monte Carlo costumes, I think Lily James is dressed a little like dowdier than um you might otherwise see. But she's just like so shiningly beautiful that it's just sort of like you don't see that class based insecurity um come through in the way that I think you you need to um yeah. to to understand why she feels like such an outsider here. And also like. I mean, I had like Army Hammer. I don't want to like root against him, but I feel like he is like one of the hugest gaping holes in the new movie where he just oh, doesn't. Big time. He doesn't sh- have it. It does like he does. It's like he doesn't get the character even. I have a thought exercise for you. So um, <laughs> <laughs> I actually wrote this down. Um, I think Army Hammer is super miscast in this role. And um, I think it's because. You want someone who feels like sort of like Cary Grant suspicion, like someone that you're like attracted to and interested in, but also like uh, you need to be kind of scared of them, too, Mm -hmm. um, and unsure what they're capable of. And so um, I I wanted to do a thought experiment, which is like, who would you cast as Maxim de Winter now? And you can you have two options. You can cast someone who is mid 30s, which is what they're going for uh, in this version, or you can cast someone older, which is like you know what it how it is in the book 
I don't know if you have any thoughts on that. I can tell you who I have in mind yeah, if you, go if first. you want. Um, so for mid-30s, I like the idea of Richard Madden. And I don't know if it's just because I, you know, Richard Madden and Lily James did that Romeo and Juliet together or whatever. But I just like... They didn't do Cinderella and together? Cinderella. Oh, so, and Cinderella. Yeah, yeah. Like make this... Did they make do both? It a, they did yeah. Romeo and Juliet too? They wow. did like a... They did a stage version that was filmed of Romeo yeah. and Juliet. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, you know, uh, bring back the Madden and James, uh, you know, dream team. Why not? Um, and then for older, I mean, he's not that much older but but th- there's this men- uh ben wheatley was talking about how when army hammer shows up in monte carlo he's like there's a scene where he's wearing like this golden suit and has this golden car and he's supposed to be this like uh idyllic glowing trophy of a person and then of course that just makes me think of dickie greenleaf and so i was like this is Jude what I, this is exactly what i thought when you first brought up this <laughs> thought like, experiment Jude Law, man do Jude it Law. make it yeah. Jude Law. so those are my thoughts i don't know richard do you have any He's a little too old, but like someone with the kind of Clive Owen energy of like, yes, are you a, a villain? Yeah. Are you a menace? You know, like, yes. but also he's attractive. Yeah. I think anything that projects that sort of quality is what's needed. Yeah. Well, and this is going to make me sound like a gossip monger, but like Dominic West, guys, like he's <laughs> yeah. got that energy. Ooh, and like, yeah. They know each one. other as we <laughs> as we know now. Yeah. Oh, uh, yes. Ever wanted to go inside the Met Gala? I'm Cho Minardi, and this week on The Run Through Vogue, we take you inside the world's most exclusive and glamorous party. We'll talk about the best looks from the red carpet and everything that happened after. Listen to The Run Through Vogue wherever you get your podcasts. It's interesting because, like, I don't think Army Hammer lacks menace. Uh, there is something, about, you know, like Richard and I have been talking about this on our other podcast about, like, Call Me By Your Name, where there's just, like, it's romantic, but there's also, like, some, like, element of of risk and danger for our young protagonist in that film. And so I think that Army Hammer is, like, capable of that. I just think it it's all absent here. It's all just, like, a really nice looking person filling out a suit all Mm -hmm. visuals you know what I mean in this movie so I don't know Um, I wanted to talk about casting because I do think Kristen Scott Thomas is perfect casting and I think she is very good in this even if the movie can't quite reach her level like I think especially when you get toward the end I mean a lot of her monologues play out exactly like they do in the book exactly like they do in the Hitchcock movie and she has exactly the Mrs. Danvers energy you want so like maybe she's the reason they made the movie and like that's maybe good enough reason even if they couldn't handle her basically yeah, I I think maybe I mean I, I I think in some ways I was coasting on the Chris and Scott Scott Thomas of it all, but when I was writing my review, I actually thought about the performance and I was like, but even that doesn't really work for me. And mm-hmm. I think that like she's doing something more than Hammer and James are for sure. But I still think all three of them, because Wheatley just I don't know, I don't want to like get in someone's head, but like I don't think gives a shit about this material. Uh, at least it doesn't feel like it. he does uh, in, yeah. in the movie he made. It was just like, I don't know, just do your thing, whatever. You know, like yeah. Army be like tall and t- handsome. And, you know, I don't know. It just felt so like unthoughtful, I even he, with t- Thomas. Yeah, I think he does give a shit. I just don't think he gets it. Like something that he and both Lily James talked about was this idea of like Rebecca uh, or sorry, the young Mrs. DeWinter on like a almost like a drugged experience a hallucinogenic drugged experience through her journey through Manderley and like he he you know he introduces these dream sequences uh in, into the the center of the movie and stuff like that and I'm like I don't you know I don't really like necessarily love that <laughs> take but that is a, a take and it is like at least a a somewhat thoughtful take 
So I, I think he does care. I just don't think he gets it, not to be a jerk about it. And I, I think the Mrs. Danvers of it all is very interesting because I agree until there's this moment where Rebecca goes to visit Mrs. Danvers in like her room and Kristen Scott Thomas is wearing this like like sheer blouse thing that I'm like, in what universe is this what Mrs. Danvers wears in her room? Like, you know, reading a book or whatever. I don't know. And I was just like, I don't, I, I don't really understand. But we should talk about Mrs. Danvers as, as an iconic uh, figure of, of literature and film and, and the Hayes Code and the like homosexual text or subtext of this all. Um, Judith Anderson played Mrs. Danvers, I think, really beautifully um, in in the original film. And this idea of of her as someone who, you know, loved Rebecca, was was maybe a lover, like her lover, but also like raised her from a child. So that brings in some some question marks. Is she like her number one, like the number one priestess worshiping at the altar of Rebecca? Or is she like... Um, you know, were they in an affair together? Like the implication from a lot of the filmed versions, um, because I think in the Diana Rigg version, it ends with her like laying down with Rebecca's negligee as as the fire rages around her and Manderley on, on, on a bed, um, you know, which I think is interesting. But what is also interesting is that there's Mrs. Danvers doesn't die or kill herself in the book. Like, at the beginning of the book, Rebecca's like, I wonder where, you know, she might have, may have. But like in the book, at the beginning, Rebecca's, or, or sorry, the narrator is like, I wonder where Mrs. Danvers is now. In the Hitchcock version, you know, she dies in the fire. In, in the Ben Wheatley version, she throws herself off a cliff. And it feels a very like Punisher sinister gay sort of thing that I'm fascinated why that's a thing in 2020, you know? Yeah. I think it's hard to know what to do with a character who is a villain and yet whose motivations make some sense, you know, and that's not an uncommon thing. That's, you know, we have plenty of antiheroes and, and, you know, well-rounded villains in film and literature and everywhere. But something about this particular story, because it's so focused on the narrator's perspective, it becomes... I guess it becomes easy to miscalibrate Mrs. Danvers on, on film, you know, like to push too hard on this quality or not hard enough on that quality. And and I think in this version, having that weird coda with the suicide just kind of, I don't guess, finally humanize her or but also weirdly like toss out the last of their problems. You know, it just feels I, I, lo- I just love the mystery of they don't know where she went. Yeah, that's so much. And it's so much truer to like people of that war i mean like like not only like where does the help go when the when the house goes away like that was a huge economic question of the day but also like where does maybe a queer woman who's like lover or at least object of desire you know dies where do they go in the world i and it's so much better left to ambiguity than to like the cold hard fact of like no she did wrong and needed to suffer and you know pay for it and atone or whatever after doing this monstrous thing of burning down a mansion <laughs> right meanwhile max and de winter literally shot a woman and gets to live happily right. ever after right you know, and just just in case anyone thinks like that reading of Mrs. Danvers is too modern or whatever, uh, Daphne du Maurier is it was a uh, you know a known bisexual. This is something that she was interested in when she was 
she was writing this. So it's not like, I, you know, I, I, I was sort of went deep on a, on a Goodreads message board about this. And a bunch of people were like, <laughs> way to read too much into everything. <laughs> I was like, no, that's not what's happening here. This is Danvers. This is an iconic figure. But Katie, I'm just wondering if you have any thoughts on this idea that like in the book, Mrs. Danvers doesn't necessarily die. Rebecca's like, I wonder where she is. And that they felt the need to kill her off in in both the Hitchcock version and in the Ben Wheatley version. I mean, there's definitely a power in the Hitchcock version. I mean, they kind of say it out loud. Like, she said she'd rather the house burn than you live in it. Like, I and watching her burn with the house, I think, is powerful. And, like, she's in the Rebecca's bedroom, which she had been kind of lovingly cared for. The whole jumping into the ocean thing, like, I guess she, like, is in the ocean the way Rebecca is. And you see her hair, like, floating in the water. Like... But they, it's shot so badly, like, the way that she jumps off the cliff, like, it doesn't seem like it's very high and, like, the cut is weird. And I don't know if, like, I was losing patience with the movie, but, like, the last 30 minutes really felt like Ben Wheatley had just been like, ah, oh, fuck, I don't care. Like, just, just mm-hmm. get this movie over with. Um, and that was really jarring. I think that all the courtroom stuff in both movies is kind of like, okay, like, my, I would rather be, like, having Mrs. Danvers glaring at people over a negligee, but, like, we can put up with this. Um, but it feels really perfunctory in the new one. and kind of like torturous to get through well i think the hard thing is when you have a mystery that is not slowly figured out it's just told to the character at the end toward the end you know yeah like oh this is what happened it's hard to give that shape you know and to make that not feel anticlimactic or something like that there are yeah. ways to do it and i think the hitchcock movie does it better but it, like you said, Katie, this one is just so rushed about it. And, you know, I, I keep saying this and I'm wondering if I just have completely flipped sides. But I was just like, with the right, really careful, interesting director, it might be a little slow in parts. But like a mini series of this where you just can really dwell like yeah. a whole hour in Monte Carlo and a whole hour, you know, when she first gets to Mandalay, And then, you know, like to really like let that tension and because emo- and, and, it's not just a physical like tension about where she is her space but it's like a real mental psychological one about like we t- everything we talked about her her feelings of inadequacy or 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 not knowing herself and you know to really have that register you also need to do the big reveal of what happened to Rebecca and in a 2 hour movie it just feels like you can't possibly do all of those at once and have it all be feel satisfying and i think that's too bad hmm. Can I share some some facts I learned about the Hitchcock movie? While I would love like it. Researching this. So you can go on YouTube and you can see Joan Fontaine's screen test, which is like, it's really good. Like, she's fantastic in her screen test. But you can also see Vivian Lee's screen test opposite, you know, her then husband, Laurence Olivier. Um, she's right. She's right off of Gone with the Wind um, uh, when she's doing the screen test. And so... Um, She's very wrong for the role. <laughs> like she's, she's great, but it's Vivian Lee, and so she's just way too confident to play like the the like you know sort of flighty young Mrs. De Winter. You um, need a real uh, Melanie type, a la yes. Joan Fontaine's sister, Olivia De Havilland. <laughs> it's true; it's a fact. Um, and then production wise, so they got apparently you know so this is Alfred Hitchcock's first American film and the studio got him uh the team that had just done gone with the wind so they built these miniature versions of manderley 
like one really small one, but one like mid-sized one where like the doors were like a foot tall. And uh, so like a pretty sizable miniature. And that's what they burn. And, you know, there's every shot. So there's no actual Mandrelay. It's like matte paintings and miniatures. And like every shot of the car of a car driving up to Mandrelay is is that miniature. And that's why like the burning of it, I think, looks so good because they actually burned something physically um, when they did it. And, you know, this is the team that had just done the burning of um, Atlanta. Yes. Don't get that wrong, Joanna. Um, So uh, (laughs) yes, yes, yes. You know, so is here is here to bring back their like fire expertise. And then just like, I mean, Hitchcock's like, uh, you know, as Richard said, the atmosphere of that movie cannot be beat in terms of like the lighting and the and the music and the menace and like. Judith Anderson's performance and it's just like it's so it's so chilling and psychological and it's so interesting to think about it as a precursor for a lot of things that Hitchcock will go on to be continually fascinated by these like male characters who are kind of like grooming the women that they're with the like hyper controlling way that Maxim treats the young Mrs. De Winter, especially at the beginning when he's like, there, there, eat your food and like a good girl and all this sort of stuff like that. The idea mm-hmm. of like a woman dressing up as another one, it's all very vertigo and like all this sort of stuff. And I just think it's fascinating to see the seeds of that here in this like an adaptation of a, <laughs> of a novel, you know, a no- of like a gothic novel. I think that's kind of fascinating. Um, and even so. though it's uh, it's his first American movie, it's still super British. And I-, I took a Hitchcock class in college and watched a lot of Hitchcock's like early British movies, which are all, you know, like less technically beautiful than Vertigo or something like that. Um, but I like how he holds on to like all these like weird little side characters, like the guy like bragging before the trial, like, oh, I tried Jack the Killer or something like that. Um, it-, it really adds this character to it and like a sense of humor that the new movie lacks completely like Maxim is funny in the Hitchcock movie and in the book that like he never gets any personality in this I thought it was interesting this little tidbit I mean it's on Wikipedia I didn't like dig for it that Laurence Olivier based his acting style on the acting style of Daphne du Maurier's father Um, really which is such a weird like British (laughs) artistic aristocracy connection like they all knew each other (laughs) somehow or I don't know if he ever really knew Gerald du Maurier, but he basically kind of tried to impersonate his acting style when he was just getting started in like theater That's school fascinating. And stuff. Yeah. That's yeah. fascinating. I love that. And then to like later like have this incredible turn in his daughter's, you know, landmark novel, I just think like uh, what a time to be making things in England. <laughs> Well, I, I just want to shout out uh, two other performers in this movie, more, actually three, uh, in the Ben Wheatley version. Um, there's Keely Hawes, who plays Maxim's uh, sister. I just think Keely Hawes is great in everything, and she doesn't have a ton to do, but she's always great when she shows up, so I'm always glad to see her. Um, and Anne Dowd, uh, I actually think is fantastic as Mrs. Van Hopper. She's like, this, I think, Ben Wheatley, and this is very Ben Wheatley, uh, this like grotesque over the top sort of thing. I don't know like that it works in the entire context of the film, but isolate in an isolation, this and out performance is kind of fantastic, I think. And then I think Sam Riley is another person who's like really miscast. And Sam Riley in general, I just don't ever seem to get what he's doing in any movie. So I don't I don't really understand him here as as uh, Rebecca's uh, cousin and former lover. Um, I don't know if I think he's miscast because he has that kind of like I can be dressed up in a suit but be threatening at the same time. But it doesn't like you see I watched the the new one and then rewatched the original. And I was like, oh, that's what that character is supposed to be. Like you see him in the Hitchcock movie and you kind of get it in a way you don't with Sam Raleigh. Yeah. Like George Sanders is like 
just giving you like sneering menacing like he george sanders is more sexually menacing as uh, the actor who plays him in the hitchcock movie as like outstanding outside a window than sam riley is like <laughs> sharing a horse with her you know what i mean <laughs> like that's what i think but i don't know uh, richard do you have any any hot jack favel takes for us no not really i just i mean i just in in this 2020 version i just feel like everyone just kind of rushes into the scene and says their thing and then leaves and it just you don't really have any sense of where like what anything means. I mean, I think like something I wrote in my review about, well, it's really about the protagonist and Maxime is like, they fall into this relationship and watching the movie, it feels like they only do so because they're supposed to, because that's what the story is. You know, like I don't, you don't feel anything. And I think even then when other characters come into the scene, uh, you know, with, with some exceptions, it just feels so programmatic, which is a shame because in the novel, it's just so complex, all of these social connections and the way that DeMarie writes where, you know, she'll kind of like wend her way towards something where you realize, oh, that's why we're talking about it or 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 that's what it means in terms of its like social cues and it's and and and, and on the kind of, you know, strictures of the day. I mean, I love in, you know, even in the opening where she's describing which this movie bungles entirely, the dynamic of how Mrs. Van Hopper gets him to sit down and have tea with them. And it's like this kind of tortured, like formality thing. Mm-hmm. Um, and that keeps tumbling along as the story goes. And you realize like how much um, you just start questioning, like how much, who's doing anything if not for all of this kind of formality, um, which is another yeah, like reason all the visitors yeah. who keep coming to the house. And she's like, Oh, I must greet them. And they have their cards waiting for me. And I must see them in the drawing room. And like, there's so much process to everything that they do. And it's really fascinating to read in the book. Exactly. And you're like, but do any of you like each other? Like, do any of you know each other? <laughs> no, definitely and, not. And, and there's there's another way in which our protagonist doesn't know herself and doesn't know anyone else. And I think that's such an interesting, really dark satire of the social mores of that era. And one that, you know, maybe the Hitchcock movie is keen to to some extent, but like this new one just like couldn't be bothered to to really be about that at all. Yeah. It made me think about um, Gosford Park, which uh, I watched for the show and then we never managed to do a proper segment about it. But uh, Rebecca's better anyway. But um, the new movie does a lot of that like upstairs downstairs thing that Gosford Park does. Like it takes her into the kitchens and shows all the staff all running around. And so it's like paying attention to it on some level. But it doesn't have any of that satire that you're talking about, Richard, about like all these people being trapped in their roles. It just kind of like looks at it. Right. And like Rebecca should not just be an opportunity for Netflix to release a Downton Abbey thriller. Yeah. You know? <laughs> and that's kind of feels like what they were trying to do. Like, oh, we'll set yeah. it in the same world. We'll even cast one of the actors from that show. And but then we'll just like add this twist to it. And it doesn't it, that approach doesn't work because that's not what the book is. Yeah, it's it's also like a, it's funny. I've been watching so much of Mike Flanagan's work between like Haunting of Bly Manor, Haunting of Hill House, uh, Dr. Sleep, uh, which I just uh, watched for the first time and thought was incredible. Um, and I, I'm like, I, I would prefer Mike Flanagan's take on this because like <laughs> Mandalay is like a classic haunted house even though there's no like literal ghosts in it and I'm just sort of like is that is that what they're trying is you know is that what this release is about is this like a, a Halloween <laughs> Downton Abbey special is that what it feels like I don't know but um... <laughs> yeah, yeah, very very spooky 
<laughs> yeah, <laughs> Downton Abbey. Yeah, so it, you know, it's it's a real missed opportunity, and it's too bad because honestly, listening to Lily James talk, I don't know if this is just like actress double speak, but it, it appears that Rebecca's her favorite novel. She claims to have read it like one million times over as as like a child, and and all you know, all throughout her life. Uh, and so you know, I'm sure she was really excited to get to be in this production, and it's really like no fault of hers because I find her very capable all the time. It's just like she's wrong for the role and and this whole adaptation just feels like misbegotten really to me so yeah watch the hitchcock version or watch gosford park a better manor home murder christmas got thomas time <laughs> you know yeah. what i mean yeah and uh i the the movie is something the netflix movie is something i feel like i watched and i like may not ever think about again after this but i'm so glad it gave me the chance to read the book and to rewatch the hitchcock movie which we should say the hitchcock movie is on youtube and like not great quality um and you can't stream it otherwise you have to buy it so i don't know like buy the blu-ray if you really want to look at it properly because it doesn't it's it's a refresher on YouTube, not like a real chance to see it. Also, YouTube like auto popped like ads for other videos over the very end of the movie, I know. which was so <laughs> awful. I had to like look up to make sure that that was the final shot. I was like, it didn't Ugh. like cut off something else, did it? No. Okay. I mean, yeah. again, like you're not like it's not really YouTube's fault, not anybody's fault. Some go so go by the criteria, and I'll stop complaining. Okay. Any any final thoughts on Rebecca before we uh, let Lily James and Army Hammer free and hopefully do better work next time? No, I just want to say that I dreamt last night that I returned to Mandalay again. Uh, the accents. Mm. The accents in the original are really weird. Like, the woman who plays Beatrice has that, like, she, like, talks like the queen, like the very clipped. Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. Received Accent. pronunciation. Yeah, yeah, oh, yeah. my lord. Well, that does it for this week's show. Um, we'll be back next week. And also, I should announce a little bit early, uh, the week of the election, we are going to be pre-recording for our own sanity's sake. An episode that has nothing to do with the news. Um, we're going to do a 2000 Oscar race flashback with some special guests. Um, so if you wanted a chance to rewatch Chocolat or Crouching Tiger, Hidden Dragon as uh, your own form of escapism from the news, um, join us. I think it's going to be really fun. Um, so that'll be uh, two weeks from this week. In the meantime, you can find us at VanityFair.com. You can find uh, Richard and Joanna writing wonderful things. You can find us on Twitter at LittleGoldMan and on our own. I'm at Katie Rich and Richard. Rylaws. And Joanna. Joe wrote this. This week's episode was edited and produced by Brett Fuchs. And this week's award for the best slogan for why you need to get out there and vote this week goes to Richard Lawson. In 2020, man, you could do a lot. You come to the New Yorker Radio Hour for conversations that go deeper with people you really want to hear from, whether it's Bruce Springsteen or Questlove or Olivia Rodrigo, Liz Cheney, or the godfather of artificial intelligence, Jeffrey Hinton, or some of my extraordinarily well-informed colleagues at The New Yorker. So join us every week on The New Yorker Radio Hour, wherever you listen to podcasts.